Thanks, Rachel. Well, good evening and welcome to Uni Church. My name's Rowan. I'm one of the pastors here, and what a great night it is. Uh, I love Easter because Easter changed not only my life now, but eternity. And it's my hope that tonight, as we look at this passage, as we hear what God has to say to us through this passage, that we'd walk away amazed, both at who Jesus is, but what that means for us. So why don't we pray and ask God that tonight, we wouldn't just see the kind of facts of history, but we'd understand the implications for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Lord, as we come together tonight to hear from your word, we ask that you would speak to us, that by your spirit, you would show us the amazing significance of who Jesus is and what he has done. And we ask that we might walk away from tonight, not just knowing more, but knowing you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Just over 10 years ago, I found myself in a situation where I'd gotten something incredibly wrong. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in that situation. Maybe you've turned over the test page and realized that none of the things that you studied are on the page in front of you. Uh, I've had that happen. Uh, maybe you've been in a situation where you've just taken someone wrong, you've misunderstood where they were coming from, and you've kind of said something awkward. Uh, this situation was reasonably significant. Uh, Sarah and I had just had our first child. We have four kids. Uh, and it was about 10 years ago. And our eldest son, our only son at that point of time, was 10 weeks old. So at 10 weeks old, all you really do is poo and cry and scream. Uh, and sometimes they sleep. I don't know where the phrase sleeping like babies comes from. Yeah, obviously someone who doesn't have a baby. But anyway, so, so Nathaniel's in the car and we decided to take our little four-wheel drive um, onto a beach uh, in Australia. Uh, we checked it all out. It looked all great. There's been a fair bit of rain and we're driving our little four-wheel drive on the access track onto the beach. And there's this little puddle that was in front of us. Well, it was, it was kind of bigger than a little puddle. It was, it was about 25 meters long. I was, it was a, but I looked at the other end of the puddle and I could see tracks coming out the end. I'm like, all good. And any kind of person that's into four-wheel driving knows you should really get out and kind of walk through the puddle to test how deep it is. But I'm like, if I just go in really slowly, then I can just kind of feel the front of the car and see if it goes down too steep, I can just reverse out and it'll all be fine. Anyway, so I went in slowly and it was all fine. I was only up halfway to the wheels and no problems. We're going through this puddle. Everything's fine. Sarah was kind of happy, which is pretty unusual for that instance. Like normally she's like, no, let's check it. Like she's the accountant kind of cautious one. And I'm like, no, it'll be fine. And together we're a great team right? Anyway, so she was all happy, so I'm happy. We're going through, the cars, everything's fine, and then suddenly the car dips, and the water comes up to the top of the windscreen. And at that moment, that's exactly what I kind of thought. (laughs) I kind of look at Sarah, she kind of looks at me, and the car kind of comes out, and I know the air intake is at the front of the car, so this is not going to be good. The car kind of keeps going for a bit longer, and I'm like, maybe we'll make it out. It was about kind of five meters to go, and then it just dipped again and upwashed the water over the windscreen kind of came back down, came out a little bit more, and the car just went boom and stopped. The engine had ceased. I look at Sarah. She looks at me. We're kind of like... And at that moment, I knew I'd made an incredible mistake, a mistake of judgment. Here we were with our 10-week-old child in the back seat, and now water was pouring into the car and kind of filling up. And I'm like, what are we going to do? We're in the middle of nowhere. How do, how do we get out of this? The car is stuffed. And so I'm kind of sitting there going, man, this is serious. You get to moments in life where you realize, maybe I've made a mistake. Well, at this point, (laughs) Sarah wasn't the happiest of people. 
Uh, Nathaniel's in the back crying. And I'm like, what if we get stuck here overnight? Like, what if we can't get help? And I'm like, well, I've got to, if I'm going to get out of the car, which I'm about to do, I, I, I've got to make sure that we have clothes that are dry. So this is where it gets incredibly embarrassing. So at this point, I'm like, okay, if we need dry clothes, I need to take my jeans off and leave them in the car dry in case we need to sleep overnight in the car because we can't get out because in the middle of nowhere and kind of run and try and get help. So I kind of take my jeans off and at that moment I look and way back in the distance there's this other four-wheel drive. So I'm like running as fast as I can through water about like hip height, screaming, stop, stop. And they just see some lunatic like in his underwear running toward them. (laughs) And again, I'm thinking maybe I made a mistake here. The guy comes, actually, and gives me a lift back. He tries to pull it out. The car can't get out. Eventually, a number of hours pass. We're able to get in contact with a tow company who bring this massive monster truck four-wheel drive and, like, tow us out with that. The car was written off, and I definitely made a massive mistake of judgment that night. There are moments in life, there are decisions that we make where getting something wrong can have serious ramifications, can't it? What I want to show you tonight is that the resurrection of Jesus is the most important decision to make sure we get right. As we look at the Bible tonight, we're going to see two ways people come along and misinterpret the evidence that exists around the resurrection of Jesus. The first mistake is that some people come along and they think Jesus is still dead. The other mistake is that we think, well, maybe he isn't dead, maybe he rose, but it's just irrelevant. It's got nothing to do with me. And the question for us as we look at this part of God's Word and think through the the events of history is, have I recognized the incredible significance of Jesus and his resurrection? Or am I going to commit what is perhaps the biggest mistake of my life? and fail to recognize his significance. So the Bible comes along as records of history, and it makes the most startling claim of all human history, that there was a man, there is a man, who has defeated death. He's defeated death. We hate death. We run from death. We hate the idea of it. We're like, no one wants to get old. It's like everything hurts and doesn't work as well. And it's kind of stretched and it's not as great as it once was. And that's just because we're getting more and more towards death. Death is not natural. Death is horrible. It hurts when people die. But the claim of the Bible is that there is a man who has defeated death. A nobody. A guy from Nazareth has risen from the dead. Now that news, it should shock us. It should make us go, what? This is very unusual. This is not the way that it should be. That news should make us go, hang on a minute. Death is not universal. I think as a society, we often fall into one of two extremes. Either we just don't think that it really happened. We kind of say, look, I just don't believe it. Myth, fairy tale, kind of good wishing, good thinking, and we kind of put it in that camp. Or we actually kind of, in the other camp, on the other extreme, we think it really happened, but we, come, we become so used to the idea that Jesus rose from the dead that we fail to consider its significance. Now, we're all going to be somewhere on, on that kind of spectrum. Uh, you might be here tonight going, no, I don't think it's real. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're thinking through this stuff. Uh, I, I'm glad you're considering whether Jesus is who he claims to be and love to chat more tonight about that if that's you. 
And you might be here kind of being like, yeah, yeah, I've heard this. Resurrection, Easter, Jesus, so what? Tonight I want us to slow down and to see the reality of how important the resurrection is. So the Apostle Paul, as he's reflecting on Jesus rising from the dead, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, If, you're, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised from the dead and you're a Christian, you're an idiot. You're a fool because this is the backbone of Christianity. This is the spine of what holds Christianity together. Have you ever seen um, the movie WALL-E? Who's, who's seen that? WALL-E. WALL-E. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Right. And there's these people on this ship that's going to some planet for so long, but it's not really a planet. Don't want to spoil the punchline for you. But um, a- anyway, and they're, they're so sitting on these big chairs that all their bones kind of go away and they've got no spine. They get out of these big chairs like big balloon Michelin men and kind of fall over because they've got no spine. Right. The spine is what holds our, our frames together. Christianity's spine is the resurrection of Jesus. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it falls apart like a floppy mess of jello. And so tonight we need to see, if, is this really legit? Definitely Paul thought it was. So come and have a look at the facts of the resurrection and its incredible significance. Let's start with the morning that this scene opens up with. The scene opens with three women, uh, Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Jesus' um, Jesus' mother Mary. They're taking spices that they'd prepared to the tomb where Jesus was. Now, why would you do that? Well, they weren't taking him cooking. They knew he was dead, and they were taking these spices to help preserve the body so it didn't stink too badly. And it's a fair kind of idea for them to go to the tomb like that, because two days earlier, they'd seen Jesus' death. They'd seen him gruesomely whipped. They'd seen him kind of hammered to a Roman cross with professional executioners doing the job. They'd seen the spear that pierced his heart and side. They'd seen the water and the blood flow out. They knew Jesus was dead. It was not a happy day. You can imagine Jesus' mother, Mary. How would you feel walking to your own son's tomb? They thought that Jesus was the savior of the world. I thought he was the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That, that had been what they thought would happen, but it seems now that he's dead. And what good is a dead king? There was no life in his eyes, no light in his heart. Jesus was dead. That's what they knew. As far as history is concerned, as far as I'm aware, there are no ancient sources that say Jesus didn't die. There are no sources from, from this time in history, whether they be Christian or non-Christian, that say that Jesus actually didn't die. They all kind of recognize that he died. Um, Islam comes along 700 years later, and Islam says that, no, Jesus didn't die on the cross. He can't die that way. But uh, they say that there was some sort of switch, but it was with no evidence from that time. It was written 700 years after the fact. Everyone says Jesus died on that Roman cross. The limp and lifeless Jesus then wrapped in linen, taken to a tomb and locked in by a massive stone. Matthew's gospel tells us that above the stone was the seal of the Roman Empire. That wasn't just like, oh, that's nice to know. (laughs) Well, that's meaning is that that was sealed with the, the full force of the Roman Empire to signify that anyone who tampered with the tomb was tampering with Rome. You would incur the wrath of Roman law. And on top of that, they placed two Roman guards, highly skilled soldiers outside the, the, the tomb. And they were stationed there to watch it 24-7. And if they failed, it wasn't just their job that was on the line. It was their life. 
the risks were high for these, these two outside. So it's no surprise that these women, when they arrive at the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, are looking for a dead Jesus. My guess is that most of the world, if we were going to go looking for Jesus today, would be doing an archaeological dig. We'd be looking for where his bones lay. We'd excavate grave sites. We'd look around the vicinity of Jerusalem, looking for the bones of Jesus. But if we were to do that, like these women that day who were looking for a dead Jesus, would have made a massive mistake. See, as the women arrived, they found something that they weren't expecting. Have a look with me at verse 2. On arriving at the tomb, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Can you imagine how you'd feel? You're rocking up, you've seen Jesus die, but you get there and the tomb is just open wide, not a guard to be seen. And what's even more surprising is that there's no Jesus, just some kind of cloth there. That's it. Like, what is going on? I was trying to think, what's a modern day example of something like that? And I was thinking, imagine rocking up on an international flight into Auckland Airport, into the international terminal, getting off the plane, walking to customs, and there's no one in customs. There's no one there at all. None of those security guards that are always grumpy, kind of checking your passport and going, mm, mm. you can't make, make good you know, conversations. They kind of go, yeah. <laughs> None of those people, the next level back, or they've checked your passport, they go, that lane over there, and they want to scan stuff. None of them. None of the scanners are running. All the doors are just open. There's no little beagle dog sniffing around anywhere. There's, there's nothing like that. It's just completely like crickets. Nothing. No one there. You're like, what is going on? This is not what I expected. This is not what should be happening right now. So these women, where is Jesus? I saw him die. What has gone on? But the surprise doesn't end there for them. Not only was the tomb open wide, not only was Jesus' body nowhere to found, be found, but the women are confronted by two angels. Now, at that point, if you're a skeptic, like I think I naturally am, I kind of go, yeah, right. You know, as if there were two winged angels there at that moment. You know, we don't see angels today. We kind of don't look around and there's kind of winged people walking down the street like, hey, angel. That's never happened. Unless your name's Angel, which there's a couple, you know, hey, angel. (laughs) You can say that. The Bible doesn't expect angels to be present all the time either. See, angels only rock up throughout the Bible in times of massive significance. Like the time that Jesus was born in Luke 2. And Luke records that the sky was lit up with thousands upon thousands of angels, all saying, glory to God in the highest. Because Jesus had been born. Massive time of significance. If Jesus was God the Son, God lit up the sky to say, have you seen my son? Well, at this moment, at a moment that the women are mourning the death of their son and saviour, Two angels turn up, a moment of monumental significance. And it tells us something. Something amazing has just happened or about to happen. Have a look with me from verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, i.e. Jesus' body not being there, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Just a side note, when you see angels in the Bible, people don't just go, hey, how you doing? They're freaked out. Like, What? It's not like this, oh yeah, this is normal. This is like, what is going on? And they kind of fall down to the ground. But listen to the words of the angels that Luke, who's a medical doctor, by the way, records for us. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? 
he asked, asked the men. He's not here, but he's been resurrected. This is kind of like going along to the funeral of someone that you know, and you're expecting the coffin to be there, to be lowered into the ground. You're kind of standing around, and then someone's going, what are you doing looking for the living among the dead? What do you mean, looking for the living among the dead? The angels are saying, Jesus is alive. He's not dead. What are you doing standing here at a tomb? It's not about the tomb. He is not here, but has been resurrected. Friends, make no mistake. The collected first century accounts all point to the reality that people claimed Jesus rose from the dead. Christian sources, they talk about it really strongly. Jesus rose, that's what the the Christians say. But even the the non-Christian sources, like Josephus and Tacitus, they all point to the reality that people thought Jesus rose from the dead. People worshipped him as the king and not Caesar. People kind of followed him and became Christians because they were convinced, not of some way of life or some religious truths, they were convinced Jesus actually rose. He actually rose from the dead. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they all record that people of that time claimed he rose from the dead. That's the record of history. And as you look at history, it becomes very hard to produce an account of what happened to Jesus other than he actually rose. People have tried to do it. There's a number of theories out there. Maybe it was kind of taken and stolen and taken away, but so many people wanted to find Jesus that you think it's pretty hard to do when there's two Roman centurions out the front. It's pretty hard to kind of pull him away. And there's a whole lot of other evidence that people claim that they saw him risen from the dead that we'll see in a moment. It's actually quite hard to pull together an account of the evidence that exists in history other than he actually rose. There's a guy in the UK by the name of N.T. Wright. Uh, He's a theologian. He's written some great stuff. And he's written some stuff that's like, yeah, it's all right. But his greatest work is a book called um, Resurrection and the Son of God. Uh, it's, it's a thick book. It's like 800,000 pages. It's like really, it's this massive thick book. Um, I, I recommend you borrow it from the library because I think it's about $120. It's really, really big and kind of, what it is, is basically a, a thesis, an explanation of did Jesus really rise from the dead? And he looks at all the different evidence that exists from all the different sources and comes up with this massive tome of a book, not a tomb, tome, like huge book, Right. And he kind of highlights it all. Now, what, what he did was he, was, he was at Oxford University. He took it to his Oxford philosophy professor and said, look, I'd love you to read my thesis, read through this book. And he's a non-Christian uh, Oxford uh, philosophy professor, read through the whole thing in kind of detail. And he came back and he said, you have put together an excellent philosophical account of the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He said, it's an excellent account. It's kind of quite tied in saying that the evidence points us to, from, from history, that Jesus rose. He said, but I just choose to believe there's another explanation that no one has yet come across. I choose to believe in something that might exist that no one can actually show me rather than the evidence that points to the reality that he rose from the dead. Don't make the biggest mistake of your life and ignore the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Have a look at this because it will change your world if it is true. History claims that Jesus is not dead right now, that he is alive, he is risen. Now, some of us kind of sit there and think it's just impossible. It's impossible. I've never seen that happen. There is no way I can fathom how that could actually be true. 
But I want to help us have a healthy sense of skepticism about our own conclusions as well. See, there have been many people throughout history who've made claims, smart people, intelligent people. They've made claims, they've cried impossible, but later been proved wrong. Let me, here's three of them. There's a man who said this, there is not the slightest indication that nuclear energy will ever be attainable. Sorry, Albert, but Einstein was wrong when he quoted, when he said that. Well, how about this? Man will never reach the moon regardless of all the future scientific advances. These guys are clever people. Um, Lord Kelvin, the British mathematician and physicist, said this, heavier than air flying machines are impossible. Show of hands, who's been on an aeroplane in the air? (laughs) Now, I'm sure at that point in time, uh, Lord Kelvin thought it's impossible for something heavier than the air, just physically, to actually fly. Like, it makes sense. It's logical. It's rational. In the same way that as we sit here today and think, you know, it just makes sense that if someone dies, they don't rise again. It's, it's, it's kind of just rational and how it works. But if you saw him risen, what would you say? It's kind of like taking someone today and say, see that? That's a plane. There are people on it. If you were there and you saw Jesus risen, what would you say? What would you think? There's a significant proportion of history who were alive at that time who saw Jesus with their own eyes. They saw him die. They saw him rise again. So before you write off the possibility that Jesus rose from the dead, I want you to consider another reason why I think there's a phenomenal amount of evidence that he actually rose. Listen to the reason that angels give the women about the resurrection of Jesus. Luke 24, verse 6. He's not here but he has been resurrected. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day? And they remembered his words. You can imagine how they're feeling at that moment. He told us that he would rise. This is not just some random event where people went, oh, he died, oh man, our whole thing's stuffed. Let's just say he rose and make up a cool religion. And kind of have people follow along with that. That's not what's going on here. Because Jesus had said that he would rise again. He told them that he would die and on the third day rise again. These women had been with him. They'd heard what he'd said. They'd seen his miracles. They'd witnessed his teaching. Luke records what Jesus said to them in chapter 9 verse 22. Listen. The son of man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes. Be killed and be raised the third day. The angels tell these women, the ones looking for a dead Jesus, to remember. Jesus said he would rise from the dead. Two times in Luke, five times in Mark. Jesus had told his followers that this would happen, and it did. But not only did Jesus tell them that would happen in his lifetime, we can go 700 years before this and read about the promises of God's promised king, who would come and rise again. Isaiah tells us, uh, to Samuel, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a promise God gives to David that his son would rule on the throne forever, that death would be conquered. He would not remain dead, but rise. There's all these writings throughout the Old Testament that say that this promised king would rise again. Psalm 22 is another one. And you can't fake time. 
This has been in existence for so long, passed around through the, through the Jewish communities that were there. We can see them. They, they promised that God's promised king would come and rise from the dead centuries before Jesus even walked the earth. Not only did Jesus say he would rise from the dead, not only did the writings that had been in existence for over 700 years point that one would rise from the dead and conquer, but the Bible also records real witnesses. Real people who saw the events with their own eyes, who were willing to die for the fact that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Would you die for a lie? If someone came up to you and the reason that they said, I'm going to kill you right now, was because of something that was a lie that you made up, would you hold on to that lie? Yeah, shoot me, I want to hold on to it. Do you know 10 of the 12 disciples, 10 of the 12 of those that knew Jesus most intimately were brutally executed, not for doing anything wrong. They hadn't done anything wrong, but because of something they said they saw. They refused to give in and say, no, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They said, no, he did. I saw the risen Jesus with my own eyes and I'm not going to turn back on that because I saw him. And so they were executed. (laughs) For something they said they saw. If it was a lie, wouldn't you just go, okay, it's all right. Don't worry about it. I made it up. Ah, April Fool's. (laughs) Only works some years. (laughs) Let me get a bit personal. Would you die for a a lie? Really? (laughs) Ten of the twelve of them? It's a lot. What do they have to gain? Why? Listen to the Apostle Paul. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He appeared to Peter. This is from 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive. Do you see that? Go and ask them. At the time that Paul wrote this, he said, most of the people that saw Jesus rise from the dead are alive today. If you didn't believe that airplanes could fly, you could say, go and ask someone who's seen one. They're alive today. You can see it. There is a historical event where someone rose from the dead and people witnessed it. And Paul is saying, go ask them. And Christianity took off within living memory of all this. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. The idea of someone rising from the dead, if we're honest, it kind of seems rather ludicrous, doesn't it? The world around us laughs. We've got this, I'll only believe it if I can see it type mentality. I mean, dead people don't come back to life, do they? At least none that I've known. But the thing to remember is, no one I have known promised they would come back to life after their death. No one I've known has ever promised that. No, no one I've ever known has ever had 700 years of history of promises about them saying that they would rise from the dead. No one that I know has over 2 billion people right now claiming that they are still alive today. The claim of history is that Jesus is not dead. He is risen. And tonight we need to make sure that we look at the evidence and do not make a mistake 
that will be phenomenally significant. But the question for us is, if Jesus has risen from the dead, so what? Like, what does that mean? They kind of like, cool party trick. It's great for him. No good for me. I can't rise from the dead. Like, what's the significance for us? What's Jesus' resurrection got to do with me? Well, to think Jesus is irrelevant would be another phenomenal mistake. Listen to what Luke 24 says a little bit later. And as we hear the, the relevance of this history, this is what Jesus himself makes of the significance of his death. It's on the screen. He told his disciples, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Do you see what Jesus understood of the significance of his death? Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Jesus' death was for our forgiveness. It was for your forgiveness and mine. See, we all need forgiveness because all of us have not treated God as God. We haven't treated him rightly. To the one who's sustaining our life, we've said, look, no offense, but you know, I just, I just, I just want to live my life my way. We don't live his way. We think we can choose how to live, and that's phenomenally offensive. It's as arrogant as turning up in a country and going, oh, no offense, but your rules suck. I'm going to live my way. Sure, you can, but you'll come under the authority of that country that you're living in because they are in authority. We have all turned our backs on the true and living God. And then when you have a think about what our hearts are really like, And the thoughts that go through our minds. Sure, there's lots of good thoughts. There's lots of great times of happiness, of joy, of fun and family that we we have. But if you're anything like me, there's times when you're like, ah, I wish that person wasn't so annoying. I wish they weren't in my life. I wish they were dead. Ooh, got a bit dark. But hey, has that ever run through your head? Have you ever been so angry at someone that you just wish they weren't on the face of the planet? Have everyone to, to lie to someone or hold something against them or do something spiteful? It doesn't matter whether we've done it or not. You see what our hearts are like. We always operate for our own benefit. So I want to put it to you tonight that the human heart is kind of like a fridge. It's like a fridge. Bear with me. I don't know if you've ever seen what happens when you leave a fridge shut for a long amount of time. Have you ever had a fridge and you've left it shut with the power turned off and seen what happens? Uh, when we moved from Sydney uh, to New Zealand about uh, seven years ago, um, we packed up our fridge into a container, a shipping container, and we kind of cleaned out all the inside of the fridge. It's all nice and white on the outside. We cleaned out the inside and kind of wiped it all off. And it was all nice and white and clean on the inside. We're like, this is brilliant. We put it in the shipping container and off it went to New Zealand. A month and a half later, we, we rocked up in, in New Zealand here and kind of the shipping container came and we pulled the fridge out. And um, when you open a fridge that's been shut for a long time, do you know what happens? It lets out what I call the fridge monster. The fridge monster is a disgusting smell that never leaves your nostrils for weeks. It like burns. It's this horrible smell. You're like, ah, what is wrong with that fridge? What has been going on? And the fridge just says nothing. I've just been sitting all shut up. See, from the outside, the fridge looks all nice and white and clean. 
But when you open that door like we did that day that our fridge arrived off the container and we opened the door to see what was inside after we were knocked over by the smell of the fridge monster, we saw his green, ugly droppings everywhere. It was gross. There was mold growing on the inside. I'm like, we wiped this out, really? And the people helping us move in were like, this is disgusting. I'm like, yes, (laughs) it is disgusting. And it stinks, it's horrible. See, life not connected to its power source, God. Life not lived in line with Him, when it's left on its own, just turns festy and green and moldy and horrible and putrid. If we're left to our own devices, you know what happens. We do things that are not right, that are not loving. Why have there been so many wars? Why, why are humans so horrible? Why do kids say such horrible things to one another in the playground? They look so innocent. They just say, you suck. Where does that come from? It comes from the reality that our hearts are not as clean as we think, as we think they are. And we so often put on a show to the world around us that we've lived a good life. We're good people on the outside, squeaky clean and white like a fridge. But on the inside, every single one of us have switched off the power source to God and are going consistently moldier and moldier and smellier and smellier. And when it comes to the moment where we should come before the the God of the universe and he should open the fridge of our heart and look into the deeds of our life, what will he see? A horrible fridge monster called Rowan who has not lived his way, who has not treated him as he ought. All of us have turned our backs on God. All of us need forgiveness for unplugging God as our lifeline and living our own way. But the amazing news is, Jesus comes along and offers forgiveness. When he died on that cross just three days earlier, he offered to swap his heart for ours. A perfect human heart that had never unplugged itself from God that it always lived the Father's way, he offers to say, I will die in your place. I'll take the punishment for that disgusting, putrid reality of us turning our backs on God. I'll fix the relationship between you and God. I'll take the penalty. I'll die so that you can live, so that you can be white and clean on the inside as Jesus was on the outside. He dealt with God's punishment for the messiness of our hearts. So then as we come along to understanding that forgiveness and what it means, what the resurrection means, we see it means three things. Firstly, Jesus rising from the dead means that forgiveness is possible. The punishment for turning our backs on God from unplugging from the life source is death. You want to have life without God? God says, okay, death is what you get. Forgiveness is possible is what The resurrection shows because death has been defeated. The punishment for turning your backs on God has been quenched by one. His name is Jesus. He lived a perfect life. Death could not hold him down, but he rose again. It shows that what Jesus did worked. The punishment that I deserve has now been exhausted on him. First thing Jesus' resurrection shows us is that forgiveness is possible. The second thing the resurrection shows us is that life after death is offered. Life after death. For so many of us, that doesn't even rate on our radar. We're like, oh yeah, who knows, whatever. Life now, I'm just living for the full right here, right now. But the claim of history, the claim of Jesus, the claim of the Bible is that life, life now is but a blink of an eye compared to the eternity that is to come. That there is so much more that death is not the end. 
that life is on offer for those who have accepted Jesus' death in their place. Death is such a horrible reality. Who wants to face it? In 1969, my dad came home from school. Uh, he was 17 years old. Uh, and he was, he, uh, his dad, my grandfather, uh, he'd come home from work and he was doing some gardening. And my grandfather said to dad, I'm just going to go and have a lie down and a rest. And so he went and had a rest for a couple of hours. Uh, three hours later, they went in to wake him up. But he was dead. 45 years old. My dad's 17. My dad, he hadn't spent a heap of time with his dad. He'd been in, in uh, boarding school for three years. His dad had been away for some more. And there's this reality that now he's faced with this gruesome, horrible reality that his dad was gone, that death is real. Have you ever had death stare you in the face? Well, the effect that had on my dad was not to push him away from God, but make him think through whether this was it. Is life really live life to the max and then die and then it's over? And so 10 years later, 11 years later, after he'd been married and they'd just had their first child, me, they, they took this kid to get baptized as an infant and the kind of church said, do you actually know the promises that you're making? And the whole time, Dad had been thinking through, is this what life is about? And he kind of saw the hope of resurrection and the history around who Jesus was. And at that moment, my mom and my dad said, we want to follow Jesus. We think he is the king. We think that there is life after death and Jesus has offered the way in. Friends, when you see that life after death is possible, it changes everything. My dad's only regret is that he didn't come to that knowledge sooner and that his dad did not know Jesus. Don't make the same mistake. Forgiveness is possible. Life after death is offered. And thirdly, Jesus is far from irrelevant. Jesus is far from irrelevant. There is no one else in this world that has died in your place. No one. Not to face the penalty that you and I deserve for turning our backs on God. His death is relevant for us because his death was our death. But his resurrection is relevant for us because he's offering you life. You are being offered here from God the Son life forever. Forgiveness. A life that does not end. This forgiveness is for us. This resurrection was for you if you would but just come and trust Jesus. He loves you. He made you. He longs to spend eternity with you. So whatever you do, do not make the mistake of assuming that he did not rise. Look at the evidence. Come and see for it will change your eternity. Death will not be your end if you trust in him. So how do we respond to this news of the resurrection? How do we respond that it's got something to do with me? Well, the women at the tomb, they remember Jesus' words. They run back to the apostles and they tell them all they've seen. Look what happens in verse 11. But these words seem like nonsense to the apostles. And they did not believe the women. You can can hardly kind of blame the apostles, can you? Yeah, sure, he's risen from the dead. Like when's that ever happened before? They saw him die. But a little bit later when the, the apostles, the disciples, they finally meet the risen Jesus. Uh, just 15 verses later, Jesus shows their unbelief. Have a listen. Uh, verse 25, we'll look at this next week. He said to them, 
How unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts all that the prophets have spoken, i.e. all of that history that's been written beforehand. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They finally got it. They're like, oh, I see it. It started to make sense. He did rise. And if he did rise, then everything else he said is true. And oh, have you heard what Jesus said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the good shepherd. I care for my sheep. Uh, I am the light. And I bring light into the world. This is God the Son. He is the way to eternal life. If Jesus rose from the dead, it proves the other things that he said. He is God. And he's good. And he's died in your place. And he's risen to offer you life. And he promises that he will come back to judge the living and the dead. The resurrection of Jesus requires a response. We can't go out from tonight saying, oh, that was good. That was a good talk. There were some truths about this. Tonight, God is saying to you, it's time to draw a line in the sand. Are you going to come and investigate the resurrection? As uncomfortable as that may feel, are you going to deal with me or are you going to continue with your head in the sand to the evidence that exists? How will you respond to God tonight? I want to plead with you. Don't be like these women who at first ran away, scared, content with a dead Jesus. Don't be like the apostles who were at first kind of see it all as nonsense. Come and look at the evidence seriously. Your life depends on it. But rather be like Peter. Did you hear how he responded? As Rachel read those verses, you hear Peter responding and he runs to the tomb when he hears these words. He runs toward the tomb to examine the evidence. And when he gets there, he is amazed, amazed. And it changes everything about how he lives. This Easter, there is no bigger mistake to make than ignoring the evidence for the resurrection. You might make mistakes that ride off your car, that see you in jail, that see all sorts of atrocities happen in your life. But if you get this one thing wrong, and Jesus did rise, then you regret it for eternity. But if you come to the one who's died in your place, that's taken the penalty that we deserve and put your life in his hands, then what a joy it is to know that death is not the end. That Jesus has died our death. That he has risen. That he has risen for us and he promises an eternal life. Not just good wishes and goodwill, but eternal life. Listen to what Jesus said to Martha in John's Gospel. He says this, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Tonight, God the Son is saying to you, do you believe this? Is this the thing that shapes how you live and who you live for? Is the resurrection of Jesus what captivates you to live in this world knowing we cannot die? No one can conquer us because Jesus has died in our place. No matter what hardships come, and they will, that Jesus has risen and that he's coming back. And because of his life and death and resurrection, we can stand forgiven. Do you believe that?
why don't we tonight come to our great God and ask Him for forgiveness. Ask Him to forgive us for our sin and to place Him at the heart of who we are, people who serve Him with our lives. Why don't you join me as we pray? Father God, we are so thankful tonight that you have not treated us right now as we deserve. That you have not ended our lives given the festiness of how we've treated you and others. We pray this night that by your spirit, you would convict us of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And historically, it makes the most sense that really Jesus rose and is alive today. And we ask that that truth may captivate us. Would give us the great hope that you promised that death is not the end. Father, we pray this Easter we would walk away from reflecting on the resurrection, amazed, wanting to serve you, free to serve you. Father, we ask that you would fix our eyes on your son as the ruler over all who is alive at your right hand and is coming back to judge the living and the dead and to offer life that does not end. We pray this in his great name and for Jesus' fame. Amen.